is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst, writer, editor, publisher, day trader, and consultant, Russell Arthur Lockhart. He was born and educated in Los Angeles, receiving his MA and PhD in experimental psychology from the University of Southern California. He has taught at UC Santa Barbara, UCLA, Berkeley, and the International College. For many years, he was director of the Human Psychophysiology Lab at Camarillo State Hospital in conjunction with the UCLA Neuropsychiatric Institute. His Jungian analytic training was at the C.G. Jung Institute of Los Angeles, where he also served as director of analyst training. He is the author of Words as Eggs, Psyche in Language and Clinic, Psyche Speaks, A Jungian Approach to Self and World, Dreams, Bones, and the Future, a Dialogue with Paco Mitchell, The Final Interlude, Advancing Age and Life's End with Lee Roloff, as well as many articles and presentations in the field of depth psychology. He's co-editor of Owl and Heron Press with Paco Mitchell, editor and publisher at the Lockhart Press with his wife Frankie, and president of RAL Consulting, Inc., which operates an international trading room for education in the psychology of the financial markets and global economies. His current work focuses on the fictive purpose of dreams, the commodification of desire, and a novel entitled Dreams, the Final Heresy. Dr. Lockhart also maintains a private practice in Everett, Washington. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, April 13, 2016, through the magic of Skype. So Dr. Lockhart, I'd like to begin with how you and I sort of met. I was watching one of the videos in the Remembering Jung series. I was watching the one with Hilda Kirsch, and I'll put a link on the website as to how to find those. They're available to stream online, or you can actually purchase the individual DVDs or even the entire set. And so I was watching it on my iPad at the gym, and they showed a photo of a group of analysts at Hilda Kirsch's Zarathustra seminar in Los Angeles in 1974. And I went to tweet that photo because it's just this great group of people. And it's a really great photo. And I was looking for a list of, you know, who was in it. And that photo is actually published in Hilda Kirsch's son's book called The Jungians, A Comparative and Historical Perspective. And I was looking through the names of the people in the group and I thought, I know him, this name, Russell Lockhart. I know him. Where do I know him from? And it turns out that you and I had been following each other on Twitter. So I tweeted the photo and the caption and I said, Dr. Lockhart, is this you? And you wrote me back. You wrote me back right away and you said, yeah, where did you find that? So you were at that seminar with Hilda Kirsch, and she's just like a little bit of an idol of mine. You know, she met Jung in the late 1920s, and she analyzed with him until his death in 1961. And so you took her seminar in Los Angeles. What was that like? Well, the, the Zarathustra seminar was uh, based on uh, going through Jung's Zarathustra seminars, which he had done privately uh, in Zurich for over a 10-year period. Mm -hmm. And this seminar was outside the regular training program. 
And the people that you see in the photograph were the people, uh, all of whom he became analysts, um, uh, and they were the members of the seminar. That was my uh, training cohort, so to speak, uh, that group that you see in the in the in the picture. I was really surprised to see it online because I hadn't uh, hadn't realized it would have it would have been online, and so it was it was nice to see. So thank you for thank you for uh, for publishing that. Yeah. Um, the uh, Zarathustra seminar was important to me because uh, it was in that seminar more than any other th- part of the training program, and as I said, it was outside the training program. Uh, that is where I felt I really became trained uh, as a, as an analyst. And at that time, uh, Hilda was my personal analyst, and so I had a combination of both the uh, the seminar and work working analytically with her. Uh, which was just a um, an amazing experience altogether. Well, I can imagine because seeing her in that video speaking for an hour about her love and appreciation for Jung is it's just it's a treasure. It's oh yes, for sure, <laughs> really is. Um, so you're in Los Angeles at the C.G. Jung Institute there that was actually, was it founded by the Kirsches? Because I'll just mention that Hilda Kirsch had married an analyst who had been training with Jung as well in Zurich. And they moved to L.A., I think, in like around 1940. James uh, Kirsch, her husband, and, and Hilda and Max and Laura Zeller came from Germany. Uh, and from England, and uh, started the the uh, uh, Jungian movement in Los Angeles, and it began with the uh, the uh, psychology club uh, that was started in 1944, um, and uh, that uh, psychology club is still going, and it was the outgrowth of that of that that began the uh, Jung Institute, which I believe started in the um, uh, early 60s, uh, if I remember right, as a formal training program. So yes, James and Hilda and Max uh, were instrumental in starting the the analyst training program in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And also in that photo is Weiler Green. He's the analyst in residence here at the Jung Center in Evanston. So it was wild to see him in that photo too. And uh-huh. um, uh-huh. And Suzanne Wagner is in that yes. picture, and yes. she's another one of my idols because she's the one behind the film project, which yes. a lot of people hear me mention uh, the documentary film Matter of Heart. And uh-huh. remembering Jung is actually all of the interviews that they filmed to create Matter of Heart, right? Yes. So it wasn't until... I think it was last year that I found out that Remembering Jung even existed because uh-huh. I, yeah, I love Matter of Heart so much oh, yes. and I've seen it so many times. And can you imagine my elation when I discovered that each interview was actually available, you know, like an they're each about an hour long of Suzanne yes. Wagner, yes, who's an analyst herself in Los Angeles and what she and her husband, you said that you know the story behind how Matter of Heart came to be. Yes, I do. Um, uh, Sue Wagner and I were at the clinic one day, and we were talking. And in the course of that conversation, it came up that 
you know, we should uh, really find some way of of uh, recording uh, uh, the analysts uh, because they're they're all getting on and and uh, uh, people aren't going to have any way of really experiencing them in a kind of a live way uh, once they're gone. And so we should think about doing that. Well, we had a meeting coming up at the joint uh, meeting between Los Angeles analysts and San Francisco analysts, and I happen to have a lot of uh, videotape equipment uh, from my uh, laboratory in Camarillo at the time, and I suggested to Sue that we uh, film everybody that was going to be doing the talking at, the, uh, at this joint meeting. And so I uh, took my video uh uh, cameras and equipment and stuff up to San Francisco and I recorded James and I recorded Hilda. You did? And I, uh, it was yes. you. And, <laughs> and uh, then I re uh, recorded, uh, uh, well, uh, um, the, the various people that were there. And those were made just in black and white videos. Uh, but out of that, the value of seeing those tapes, Sue decided that she really wanted to go full hog <laughs> into oh. that project. And so she got, uh, her husband George, uh, both of them got really interested in really taking this on and raising money for it mm -hmm. and, and getting people to, to um, uh, consent to being filmed. And so that then became the Matter of Heart project. And as you can tell, uh, Sue and George did a magnificent job. Yes. And, and um, both recruiting all the people in the interviews and the production quality uh, uh, of yes. the filmmakers, they, they got together. And so it was a wonderful project. Uh, but that was, its, that was its germinating start there in that conversation between Sue and I that day in the clinic. It was you all along. Dr. Lockhart, thank you, because that is, I'm so glad that they did that. It is. Yeah, me, me too. It, wow. <laughs> So you completed your training then in Los Angeles at the Jung Institute, but yes. you did a lot before that. You got your PhD in experimental psychology at USC, University of Southern California. Yes. And what were you working on at the time, and why did you decide to become a Jungian analyst? Well, uh, let's. <laughs> that's a um, that's quite an interesting. Um, uh, question. Uh, let me see if I can uh, uh, give you the short version. Okay. Uh, my uh, my uh, introduction to Jung uh, was when I was about 13 years old, and that would have been in 1950, 51, somewhere in that area. And my next door neighbor, uh, the man that lived next door, was a communist. And he took me under his wing and was mentoring me to become a little communist. Uh -huh. And uh, became quite, quite an avid little Trotskyite, actually. And, <laughs> and he would, uh, every so often, he would uh, bring over a box of books or pamphlets and stuff that I was to read and study and as part of his program for me. And... Uh, I, I read all this stuff and so forth, but one day I found a book that didn't seem to go with the others, and it was um, Jung's Modern Man in Search of a Soul. Mm -hmm. And 
Now, remember, I'm only 13, so I take this book and I start reading this. And I, you know, I ask myself, what's this got to do with communism? <laughs> what's this got to do with communism? <laughs> and I couldn't see any relationship between this book and communism. So, uh, but I was I was entranced by it, sort of not really understanding anything of it. Right. But I was entranced, and actually, I set this book aside, returned all the others. And uh, so uh, my experience with Jung, uh, if I can call it that, uh, began with my little thievery <laughs> of this book, oh. Modern Man in Search of a Soul. Okay, so <laughs> so, so then uh, uh, in in 1960, uh, I got married uh, uh, to my wife Frankie, and she had been in Jungian analysis. Um, uh, for a couple of years by that time, and of course I was I was very much of a scientist, mm -hmm. and um, so I didn't have anything to do with any of that stuff. I did have uh, some sessions periodically with uh, with her analyst, uh, uh, work on marriage issues and whatnot, and right. um, but I, I I had no particular interest in in it. Uh, then uh, I'm in my uh, graduate work. And I'm sailing along, um, doing really quite well. I was kind of a golden boy in the program and all that. And um, and it came time to write my dissertation. And I was working on in an area called human psychophysiology of cognitive processes, uh, which uh, today has kind of morphed into a lot of neuroscience of right. cognitive processes. But that was the field I was involved in, got my PhD in. But uh, I had sailed along, as I said, and now came time to write my dissertation. And I had given talks on my, my dissertation all over the country already. And so it was a simple matter of writing it up. But try as I might, I got totally stopped. I would, if I tried to write, I would get sick. Mm. I nauseous. Uh, it got so bad uh, that I literally was paralyzed, um, and I I didn't get much sympathy from my friends <laughs> or or colleagues because mm -hmm. Lock, Lockhart having trouble was a joke, you know. So anyway, that I decided to take a year off uh, and plan to just teach for a year, and maybe maybe I would be able to um, uh, to get back to the writing of my dissertation, and um, the. Um, uh, night before, I was going to tell my chairman that I was going to take this year off. I had this dream. And the dream was I saw the outline of the buildings of USC campus. And up from the left-hand side of this dream uh, came this enormous wave with these finger-like waves. I'm sure you've seen the Japanese prints that have these, these yes. enormous waves with these finger-like waves and the little man down below and the big wave about to inundate him. Right. And uh, that was my dream. And I couldn't get out of the dream. So I, I got up out of bed and I was still in the dream. And I couldn't, it wouldn't stop. It wouldn't stop. The wave just stopped just above my head. And I was, I was in a panic. Uh, my wife woke up. She saw that I was white as a sheet. Uh, she didn't know what to do. It was like four in the morning. 
but she put in a call to her analyst and within about an hour he called back and I talked to him and told him what had happened. He says, you have to see somebody right away. Let me arrange it. So he called, he called his uh, colleague, uh, Mar uh, Marvin Spiegelman, mm -hmm. and um, uh, I called Marvin, and Marvin agreed to see me that very day. And uh, that was the beginning of my Jungian analysis. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was in 1964. So had you uh, had you written that thesis? And well, it took about uh, three months of um, pulling teeth, as Marvin said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but then my my energy was freed up. And you mean, wait, you mean working with the dream image? Yes, working with the dream image, right. and uh, and so after about three months of working with Marvin. Uh, I had this experience of this sort of dam breaking and all this energy poured forth and uh, I recovered uh, my artistic background, which I'd had uh, quite a lot of it as, as a child. I recovered uh, a lot of my musical background uh, and the energy enabled me to write my dissertation um, uh, very quickly. So mm -hmm. it was that dream and then working on that dream with Marvin um, that really um, uh, broke through all of that and convinced me yeah. that uh, <laughs> there was something to this business of dreams mm -hmm. and uh, something to this business of, of analysis. And because I had experienced it so powerfully uh, that I was totally convinced. And so that was the beginning of my, my analysis. And then uh, some years later, uh, I was at a um, at a Jungian conference, and Hal Stone, uh, who was my wife's first analyst, um, uh, came up to me during a break and he said, "Russ, I think it's time you considered becoming an analyst." Mm. And so I, I went and I, um, I I met with Hilda, who was my analyst at the time, mm -hmm. and said, "Hilda." Uh, Hal thinks I, I should be an analyst, so I think I'll apply to the training program. And she um, kind of got really silent and looked at me, and she said, don't be stupid. Ooh. <laughs> really? She said that? And you're laughing. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, was of course she serious? I was to totally, I was totally crestfallen, right? I mean, I was, I was really upset, and I... And uh, you know, combination of being angry that she would say that, and what, why, why, why couldn't I be? Why was it stupid, and and so forth. And I and I left, and and but what happened? What happened is then I started having dreams, mm -hmm. and the dreams started showing me a, as being an analyst. <gasps> and so what Hilda had done for me was to was to break what had been just a simple ego idea um, ah, right. of being an analyst until something really began to take root in me through the dreams that really then convinced me as well as her when I told him about them that yes this is what this is this is okay this has a foundation in me that's not just not just my ego adding another award on the wall kind of thing because would you say that 
she couldn't, she didn't have that answer for you. You had to find that in you. You you didn't take what she said to heart and say, well, she knows what's best for me. No, I couldn't. It's because what, what, what I knew was best for me was what was coming up in my dreams. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, you know, I certainly learned that in spades over the years in working both with Marvin and with, with Hilda, mm-hmm. uh, as well as with James Hirsch, uh, that dreams were the foundation. Uh, and if it wasn't rooted in my dreams, then it wasn't something that I was really going to um, uh, take to heart. So I was initially upset, thrown off path, as it were, <laughs> but it, it, it triggered such, a, uh, such a, um, a resonance in me through these dreams that it really did set me on the right path. And so uh, that's what she was doing. Now, she, she would not have said that she did this as a plan, mm-hmm. as a uh, part of the treatment plan or anything like that. This was Hilda's gift of quite spontaneously saying what came up in her to say. Okay. She was always connected that way. And so it was, it, it was an enormously enriching experience, the whole process. Yes. So she didn't feel bad about what she said. She stayed true to what came up for her that she oh, absolutely. Absolutely. found to be yeah. appropriate in the moment. Yeah. And I'm glad that you bring this up because I get asked a lot what the difference is between other forms of therapy, quote unquote, I really, you know, that's kind of a heavy word, and union huh? analysis. Yes. And I think that this is a great example of that, of that the therapist doesn't have the our answers, right? We right. do. Right. And what would you say about uh, Jungian analysis being sort of different from other more contemporary modes of oh, therapy. Yeah, yes, yes, it's it's vitally different. It's it's vitally different because it the 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 core of Jungian analysis, as I understand it in my own experience, and working with analysts that I've worked with, as well as working analytically with others, is this. The analysis, the purpose of analysis is is to connect you with your unconscious and the collective unconscious underneath that. That's that's it. Now, why is it important for us to be connected to the collective unconscious as well as the personal unconscious? Because that's where you're going to really be infused with the most and deepest creative energy that you can access in one's life. The creative energy. Yes. And let me just add a yeah, little please. piece to that because very often our, our in quotes, personal unconscious uh, is so full of the, of the drama of trauma and injury and defeat and, and hubris and, all those, all those things that are characteristic of what the ego has suffered, so to speak, and and so getting beneath that level of the of the personal unconscious is really crucial to accessing the deeper um, possibilities of being human. Um, 
and uh, creativity plays the major part in that. And when you say creativity, you don't necessarily mean just artistic creativity. Well, it certainly includes that, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It isn't limited to that. It's it's being in a creative process with every aspect of your life. Speaking of that, you've written a number of books that I'd like to mention today. And because we were just talking about dreams, I'd like to bring up a book that you wrote with Paco Mitchell called Dreams, Bones, in the Future, a Dialogue. And yesterday I had taken a, I'm big on screen caps, I had taken a screen cap of the back of the book and what it says is, and it got a pretty big reaction, it says, our nightly dreams are a natural resource, a national treasure, not yet plundered by the rapacious complexes of the controlling powers, be they military, industrial, corporate, educational, political, or any others hidden from view. If you have not yet thought of your own dreams as a treasure, you surely will after reading this remarkable dialogue between Russell Lockhart and Paco Mitchell. Well, obviously, it's about uh, dreams, uh, and uh, not just dreams, but dreams and synchronicities and visions and other manifestations of the unconscious, um, and basically how and why it's crucial, um, not just for the individual, but uh, for the culture and probably for humanity itself, uh, to for the future, I, I think you can see that much of the uh, the world is in a, in a is in a fairly fairly sad state, and uh, a lot of our conscious um, efforts uh, are not really solving the problems. Right. Not, not even taking into account what the problems are, and so uh, to me. Uh, the richest resource that we have that we're not we're not we're not tapping in any way in a large cultural sense um, are the dreams and the visions and the synchronicities that we experience um, in a uh, um, you know in our nightly life and in our in our daily rounds and so we're Paco and I in this book are really calling uh, for uh, dreams to become much more central. Uh, not only in um, uh, in each of our individual lives, but in our collective lives altogether, our national lives, our cultural lives, the lives of the world, um, and uh, you know, it's 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 pretty big order, and yeah. uh, I don't expect to see much of that happen in the re- in the rest of my lifetime. But to me, this is the direction that things need to need to go. I think. Uh, just to kind of uh, set what the what the book is trying to say is that in the future, I think we'll see that dreams are going to become ever more central. Not again, not just in individuals' lives, but in in institutional lives and in cultural lives and and the life of the world. Uh, I think we're going to see, uh, which we don't see now, uh, a great a, a great deal more continuity between. Um, between our experiences that we see in dreams, that we see in synchronicities, and we see uh, in other manifestations of the unconscious. Right now, uh, all these things are kept really quite separate, distinct. They're just little fragments uh, scattered around. 
we don't really experience the continuity of these things. So you have a synchronistic experience, and then let's say you have another one. You don't really see this the the continuity between those two experiences. It's as if you uh, walked into a, a, a theater and watched one second of the movie and then came back uh, 20 minutes later and watched another second of the movie. You would see entirely different experiences, but you wouldn't experience the continuity. Well, the continuity is, in fact, available uh, if one approaches the unconscious in the right way. And that's partly what we're talking about in the book. The third thing that um, uh, I think we're going to see is more and more circulation of dreams. Um, right now, each of us are dreaming uh, uh, at night. Maybe we tell our partner or maybe we tell our analyst or whatever, or maybe we don't tell anybody. For the most part, most people don't tell anybody their dreams. Right. Uh, and so I think this is going to become ever more a part of, of, of what happens in the culture in the future. Uh, we're not we're not seeing much of that, obviously, but it's coming, I'm sure. Um, and the fourth thing um, is the idea of 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 coming, um, uh, and and I mean that in in kind of all the senses of that word that one might associate with that. It's a um, a, a very um, uh, uh, erotic word. Uh, it points to eros as. Uh, the major factor that we're missing um, and needs to be developed. I think this is the uh, major factor, as I tried to point out in Psyche Speaks, that uh, is the great work that lies before us in the future as humans uh, to develop Eros. And it is also the nature of what Jung referred to as the coming guest, uh, which he thought was the principle that would be coming um, along in the future, uh, that we would be able to um, experience primarily through our dreams and through art and the artist. And as I as I explained in Psyche Speaks, I was not thinking of arts artists there as as separate individuals, but as the artist in each one of us. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the idea of re relating to every aspect of our life in an artistic way. Um, so those are some of the elements in the in the dreams, bones, and the future that that uh, Paco and I were working on and talked about. Well, let's talk about Psyche Speaks. Um, okay. The subtitle is A Jungian Approach to Self and World. And it was based on a series of lectures that you gave in the 1980s in New York and I was reading a little bit about it, and um, you had said that they the lectures were recorded, but it turned out that the master tape was full of static. Yes. Would you look at that symbolically? Well, because <laughs> <laughs> that's that's always where where I go first. Is what well, does this well, mean symbolically? Well, well, yes, yes, sure. Um, uh, obviously, I've spent a lot of time thinking and feeling about that. Um, the uh, Jung Foundation uh, hired a professional recording studio mm -hmm. uh, to record the lectures. And uh, so they did. And But when the uh, tape was, um, uh, master tapes were, were um, uh, examined, it turned out that they were just full of static. And so there was no actual recording 
of my doing uh, those lectures. So how many lectures were there? There were three, mm-hmm. three, three different lectures. And uh, in, in that book, I explained that uh, I had had a dream uh, that uh, was um, uh, a part of my preparation for working working on the material of those lectures. The dream uh, simply announced no Jungian lectures. For you, not to for, do any. Yes. Yeah. Now, here I am. I've been selected to inaugurate this obviously prestigious series of lectures. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time in my dream it says no Jungian lectures yeah okay so the way I took that uh, was that okay I, I can't give what I would call a traditional Jungian lecture that's clear I have to give a lecture that comes out of my the living experience of my own unconscious and that's got to be the source of what I'm going to talk about in those lectures. Well, how does one do that? Well, that's that's the task. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I often have dreams uh, that, that turn out to be tasks. Like a number of my books uh, have titles uh, that are straight out of my dreams. Um, words as eggs. I was going to say, words as eggs. <laughs> you know? You know? Uh, so these things become tasks. Yeah. And I don't say, well, I can't do that. I say to myself, okay, you know, here it is. I've got to do this. So then I orient myself to that task and take it on. Now, what what happens when we ignore that? Why is that dangerous? Oh, well, I think part of the danger is that we get sick. We get unfulfilled. We're, so we're talking about ignoring the messages that are coming yes. up from our unconscious. Yes. Uh-huh. We can get sick. We, we can, can get sick, yes. Feel yes. unfulfilled. Unfulfilled. We get uh, irritable. Yeah. Um, we get negative. We get bitter. Uh, all these things uh, are, are emotional aspects that can undermine most everything that we do. And... I mean, you know, I'm fairly encouraged that some of the more recent research on on dreams as part of the neuroscience of of Mm -hmm. sleeping dreaming is showing not only do we need uh, good sleep, good adequate sleep, not only for deep uh, deep sleep, but also for REM sleep. Yeah. And how how important REM sleep is, uh, that's been known for a while. But now it's also being shown that uh, that, uh, dreaming itself is crucial to proper functioning, yeah. not only of the immune system, but many of the other physiological systems, as well as our performance uh, in various tasks, as well as in our capacity to relate, and so on. So th- these things are becoming um, evidence-based, as they say nowadays, and that's, uh, uh, that's good, uh, because uh, without this, this real attention to, to the unconscious in this way, um, I, I'm, you know, I think uh, we're 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 missing not only what <laughs> what we call there a, a national treasure, a national resource, uh, but um, this is this is uh, uh, hurting us both individually and as well as collectively. A couple things came up when you were speaking just now. The first is, what would you say? Because a lot of people say this to me. What would you say to somebody that says, "Well, I don't dream." 
Well, uh, what they're really saying is I don't remember the dreams. Right. Uh, because we know when you put such people in a laboratory and wake them up at particular times, they will um, quite readily report dreams. Now, is there a reason, do you think, why people, I don't mean different people, but a person will their whole life not remember their dreams? Well, first of all, there's, uh, I, I don't know and never have never encountered anyone that has not experienced dreams during their whole life. Almost everyone will remember childhood dreams. They may not remember dreams currently or uh, very, very much a part of their adult life. But um, what I say to people who ask me these, this question is, first of all, it's, it's, not a, it's not a problem of dreams because you're having dreams. You're just not remembering them. Mm -hmm. And I say, and I ask them, what if something really important was happening to you and you had no awareness of it and no memory of it? What would you feel? Would you discount the dream or are you going to investigate and become curious about why you're not remembering? Okay. Now, the not remembering of dreams is actually a very complex issue. There's all sorts of psychological reasons that are, are, have been uh, dis, uh, determined for people not remembering their dreams. Mm -hmm. But there's also uh, kind of an emerging um, uh, some physiological research about why we're not remembering. That there's actually a, a disturbance in the in the uh, uh, memory circuits uh, so that during REM sleep or during dreaming sleep, the there's a, actually a memory disturbance so that the memory cannot consolidate what you're actually experiencing in the dream. You have to keep in mind that when, the, when a person is dreaming, when, you're, when we're asleep, our brain is even more active than when we're awake. And dreaming is a large part of that. So here's this huge activity that's going on in your brain, okay? And if you're not remembering it, then one potential reason is that there's a problem with the memory circuits. Now we're starting to find out what those problems are. Many of those problems are related to stress. Mm -hmm. And particularly the uh, chemistry of stress involving the hormone cortisol. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, is that as our lives become ever more stressful, which they are, it's a global epidemic, obviously, uh, what the human brain is experiencing is being flooded more and more with cortisol during sleep. Um, and this is exactly backwards from what should be happening. The cortisol levels should be going down during sleep, right. not up. And because of this, people are having more, more and more, more and more trouble remembering, more and more trouble uh, making use of memories. Uh, and I think this is one of the things that's very likely to be uh, a factor. Everyone I've worked with who's had trouble remembering dreams soon starts remembering dreams as soon as the level of stress is reduced and uh, ways of coping with stress are, are learned and patterns of sleeping are improved. So that's, that to me is a, is a, is a critical issue because uh, it's, it's not something that people are paying much attention to that that they're losing their dreams that for for most people not having dreams is a blessing <laughs> you know and and so uh but they don't recognize that that this is a potential problem physiological problem of memory 
And this also may uh, play a part uh, ultimately in the development of the various dementias uh, that um, are occurring with uh, increasing um, uh, incidents uh, as we get older. Yeah. Now, I was just wondering if it had anything to do possibly with the content of the dream, with us avoiding the memory of the dream because of its content. Well, uh, in working with uh, veterans, let's say, who uh, are still fresh from uh, battle zones, Mm -hmm. uh, they are flooded with dreams of horrific nature often playing over and over the, the experiences they had when they saw bodies exploding and, and all such uh, horrible things, uh, they don't seem to be having any trouble not remembering. What they, do, what they do is, try, is ter- try to do everything to stop the dreams mm-hmm. uh, by drugs, alcohol, uh, all manner of things, trying to, trying to stop these dreams. And... Uh, so that's one aspect. The second aspect is people who experience trauma, uh, let's say childhood uh, abuse of all kinds, um, one of the things that gets damaged in trauma is the imagination. And so the imagination itself, the neurological basis of imagination, uh, is, is implicated in the whole process of of dreaming and remembering dreams. Okay, so a person who has experienced a lot of abuse uh, early on or even presently uh, is going to be losing access to their imagination. The, what the, pro- the problem with abuse is it literalizes experience so much that the person cannot escape from the literalization phenomenon. Uh, and so they ha- lose their access to imagination. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways of, and they'll often lose capacity to dream, and their their dream life goes goes blank and dark as well. And but in my experience in working with people who have been terribly abused, uh, doing things that recover the imagination uh, is the first first real step in being able to to make progress in the recovery from abuse. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, I got us off on a little bit of a tangent there. We were talking about your book, Psyche Speaks, and mm-hmm. and how the tape, the master tape was full of static. Oh, and yes. Right. And so eventually you had it published with, was it Chiron at the time? Because it was Murray Stein and Nathan Schwartz Salant that published the book in 1987. Yes. Uh-huh. And you prefaced that book with saying, Read what follows as if I were talking to you, sitting perhaps in some wooded place with animals watching, their ears pricked up as if they were hearing something, something hiding in the words. What did you mean by that? Well, I meant several things. Um, One is, um, because of the way I wrote Psyche Speaks, in in kind of letting go of a uh, uh, what might one might say is a sort of a um, academic approach to the uh, subjects, um, I I wrote it in what I would subsequently uh, think of as kind of a layered form, layered quality. Mm-hmm. And I remember I took a year off to write these lectures, uh, and so I spent most of my time. Um, 
really working on this. And it's written in a way that if you read it, particularly if you read it several times, you'll start you'll start hearing more and more and more that's in it. Yes. Uh, and I think I succeeded in doing that because most everyone I've talked to who has read Psyche Speaks said, first of all, that they f- they feel the need to read it periodically, mm-hmm. uh, and they, each time they get they they keep getting uh, like hearing a new voice or hearing new uh, hearing echoes of something that they hadn't experienced before, mm-hmm. and so that's that's uh, one one answer. The other answer is that I deliberately called upon animals there. And there's quite a lot of animal imagery in the book because. We uh, are, uh, and at that time it was it was pretty evident uh, that we were lose, basically losing our connection to the animals. And what I mean by that is not only the animals in our dreams, mm-hmm. but our whole relationship to the animal world became more and more disconnected to. And my feeling was that this is this was going to be terribly consequential over time. Mm-hmm. And and I think you can see that this is, you know, with the extinction of species at the highest rate ever and so forth, um, uh, you know, uh, staying connected with animals is becoming really important. It, it, it's happening in many different places now, glad to see, uh, discovering how healing animals can be in hospitals, uh, in um, uh, ex- extended care facilities, uh, as one ages. How important the the having an animal presence is, um, and yet institutionally tend to try to you know keep that from happening. So anyway, at that time in 1982, I was very concerned with the idea of of being fu- as fully connected with animals as possible. Mm-hmm. That that would be helpful to us in many different ways. Do animals represent our instinctual nature? Would you say that is that too general? Well, I think. I think at a minimum, that's what they represent, is our instinctual nature. But that also tends to personalize our instinctual nature as just humans. And we miss the connection to other animals. What do you mean? Uh, Well, if we're just thinking of our own instincts, uh, we're not really thinking of the animal itself. Right. Uh, And so we've become sort of wrapped up in ourselves, as it were, as if um, all the uh, elements of a dream are just about us. And uh, while there's certainly something to be gained from the idea of thinking of animals in our dreams as um, uh, as uh, symbolically representing mm-hmm. aspects of our own physical nature and so forth, uh, it's also important to ask what does the animal itself want in your dream? What does it want yes, as, it as want? an individual or from us? From us. Well, for, what for does instance, the animal want? What does the yeah. animal want? For instance, let's come up with an example here. And I had meant to ask you this before. Uh, I think it was on one of your web pages, or it might be on your Twitter page. There's a drawing, a very simple drawing, but it really caught my eye. It's of an owl. And I love owls. I wear an owl pendant around my neck all the time. I never take it off. And right now, we have Skype open and I can see behind you, there's an owl on the wall. So is that an example? How could we look at that 
<laughs> well, if you were if you were here, Laura, uh, you'd see owls everywhere really? around. <laughs> you know, and let me tell you where this comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was eight years old, I was in the Cub Scouts, and I was out on a hike one day with the pack, and we were hiking in the mountains, and we were fooling around as we often did, and I got knocked down off the path and started rolling down rolling down the hill or the mountain and you're rolling down a mountain i was rolling down the mountain wow (laughs) and and i was getting pretty banged up by hitting bushes and rocks and you know rolling down there and i was speeding up and all of a sudden i see a, a huge owl in the sky and the owl says grab hold of the tree And at that moment, I crash into this thing, and I wrap my arms around it, and it's literally a small tree, Mm. okay? I wrap my arms around it, and I'm in shock or something, but I start coming to as the people are coming down the hill to get me, and I look over the edge, and it's a cliff. If I'd gone any further... I wouldn't be here to talk with you today. (laughs) And so this image of the owl in the sky talking to me this way literally saved my life. Yeah. Um, And since then, I've been a a member of the owl clan, (laughs) as I would call it, you know. And um, I ask myself, um, you see, I can't just I can't just project or or interpret that owl as some part of my instinctual nature. Okay. I have to take it as something um, outside of me, or so, let me just say something other. Okay. Leave it more indefinite that way. Something other that I need to relate to, not interpret. Not try to understand, not try to explain, but to relate to. I, this reminds me of something that I experienced uh, in the training program when we had a, 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 a talk with um, uh, Giles Quispel, who was the um, you know this Gnostic scholar and who had been involved in obtaining the. Uh, the Jung Codex, part yes. of the Nakamadi Library, uh, that the Jung Institute in Zurich purchased to give to Jung on his birthday. And Jung didn't want to have it called the Jung Codex, but it became called the Jung Codex. Right. But, yeah, I'm but, sure he didn't. But in the, in, when, as, as Crispell was talking about this to us, and uh, we were talking about mystery, and we were going on and on, about mystery, you know, and the way we do as we talk about things, and then all of a sudden he 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 stopped, he stopped us, and he put his finger to his lips as if telling us to hush. Shh. And he said then something that I'll never forget. He said, "Mystery is not to be solved, or resolved, or dissolved." Mystery is to be embraced, loved, 
and out of that will come one's deepest sense of life, meaning, and purpose. And the reaction I had when I heard that from him was that dreams are a mystery, and certain other experiences are mysteries as well. And what, what Quispel was saying would be true of them as well. And so since that time, I've had the attitude, like, for example, in relation to this owl. This owl is a mystery. Yes. Um, and I've, I've embraced it, let's say, as much as I embrace that tree at the owl's urging. Um, I've embraced that owl uh, as fully as I know how to do. And uh, in doing that, Every time I encounter an owl, whether it's an actual owl flying around or sitting in a tree, or whether it's an owl that somebody has given me because they know I have a penchant for owls, or whether it's some story about an owl I read, whatever it is, I experience, I experience this, this sense of embracing it. And it then, it then stimulates something. It generates something. Um, it's that... It's that eros that comes from embracing rather than all the separating sort of thing that we do when we try to interpret and understand and, and explain. That embracing, that, that coming together, that male and female or whatever sense of coming together one has, that generates something that you could not get to otherwise. Uh, so eros always gives birth to something that is different than what Logos generates or what power generates. Uh, Eros is always going to generate something different. And it's that that I've tried to involve both in my, my own personal work uh, with myself and with my unconscious and whatever comes to me in dreams and visions and synchronicities as well as the people that I work with and in relationship to the things that I write. It's, it's probably a good point to mention um, uh, Keats. Uh, in a letter to his brother, he wrote uh, about what he called negative capability, which was the capacity to stay in doubt, uncertainty, ambiguity, without reaching or grasping for reason or explaining, interpreting. It's that staying in that negative capability, staying with doubt. Don't try, you know, if you're in doubt or if you're in uncertainty or if you're in mystery or if you're in something, stay with it. Relate in that way to it. Embrace it. And out of that embrace, if you give it your warmth and attention, if you embrace it in that sense, something will begin to stir, something will be generated, and out of that is going to be something that you can't get any other way. And that's the fundamental significance of Eros. That reminds me of, I have something in my notes here, in the book that you wrote with Lee Roloff, The Final Interlude, Advancing Age and Life's End. In the dedication to that book, you quote Paul Theroux, Nothing is perfect, nothing is completed, nothing lasts. Yes. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, we Jungians, 
in this extroverted, happy-go-lucky culture that is America today, how do we stay there in in Thru's words when yeah. yeah when the world around us is telling us to smile, to have a good day? Yes. Right. Yes, absolutely. So, how do we hold that? Well, let me say first of all that everything, basically everything, as you just referred to, is conspiring against this. Yes. So as as positive as a lot of the modern developments can be, the internet and all that, uh, and everything else that kind of surrounds it, um, as positive as it is, it's it's really separating us more and more. The technology. The technology and surface level, the superficiality, the speed. You know, there is no dwelling with anything anymore. There is no deepening um and so the the how to how to stay with naked negative capability begins i think for and this this will be my position i would say that it begins by tending attending to your dreams dreams are one of the few things that have not been subjected to commodification what do you mean um, by that well I'm writing a book called Commodification of Desire. And it's what's it's what's happening to us in the world these days where everything no matter what it is mm-hmm. becomes commodified, monetized, uh pulled toward profit. And f- from the days of 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 Bernays, Edward Bernays who was Freud's nephew, uh, who is the inventor of modern um, uh, public relations and, and propaganda? Uh, he in, he basically invented the the way of uh, combining the understanding of the mind uh, for the elites, so that they could use these understandings of the mind at that time, namely Freud, to manipulate the large public. And so this has become in our present time the way in which our desire uh what we think of as what we think of as eros it's not mm-hmm. real eros but what we think of as eros all of our desires it's the way our, our desires are manipulated uh into monetizing for the elite and that's what's happening uh at every level of our society every level of the culture every level actually in the basically in the world right uh, and so it's it's against this that the dream is not is not yet commodified, oh. right? Uh, nobody's charging us for dreams. <laughs> we don't have to pay for dreams. Yeah. Now, now we can certainly go to analysts like me and pay a great deal of money. Yes. To have your dreams talked about right. or listened to or interpreted or whatever we do, uh, but you're paying a lot of money to have that done. But you don't have to pay any money to have your dream. That's one of the last areas in human experience that's not being commodified. So to me, that's the antidote. Paying attention to your dreams. Spend time with them. I was going to say, what can we do? What can people do, yes. people who are not in analysis, yes, who have dreams and are not bringing them to someone? 
First of all, spend time with them. Write them down. Take the images and draw pictures of them. Write stories from them. Use them as impulses to do something original in your own life from the vehicle of the dream. Creating from your own dream that is not subject to commodification is going to give you experiences and manifestations of your own inner life that you can't get any other way. Right. And just about everything else is conspiring against this. So to me, this is the, this is the place where one can really practice uh, Keats's negative capability. And to me, that's the antidote to so much of what's happening to us. And I have to say that we are uh, willing, uh, <laughs> uh, willing participants in this stuff that's going on, right? That's part of that's part of the part of the degree to which our our own desire has been commodified. We are are just in it. We're we got both feet in it. <laughs> you know? So. And so I do look for antidotes, and this is my answer to that question. I was going through all of your books, and uh, I was pulling out little things here and there, and you said the dream embodies the psyche's urge toward new tellings, new stories, new myths. Yes. Well, you know, what I call the standard Jungian approach, mm -hmm. which I was warned about in my dream, no Jungian reference. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> <laughs> so I had to come up with something, right? Oh, so okay. anyway, right. Uh, when I finally got the idea, and it became clear to me that dreams, all dreams are about the future. Let me put it that yeah. start. Yeah, is it really? Because, and our predilection in psychology, all psychologies mm -hmm. that deal with dreams at all, is to relate the dream to the past. Right. Whether our childhood past or whether the past in, in, in the past folklore or folk tales or myths or whatever. And I, I'm not discounting any of that. Okay. I'm just saying that in doing that wholesale, we're missing yeah. the really crucial element of dreams, which is that they have to do with the future. And that's Jung. And, and that if one relates to the dreams in a way that, that is not kind of almost dismissing them in favor of an interpretation. Instead, using the dream as a kind of a platform, oh, as right. kind of an impetus for writing a new story, for telling the new story, um, uh, whatever it is, however small and minor and insignificant it may seem in any particular dream, it's part of a new story. I had promised some people publicly on Twitter, which... I need to stop doing that. <laughs> yeah, I really should. That you were going to tell some stories about some of the people that you knew when you were, I don't know if it was in training or, or when you were in Los Angeles. And a couple of those names are Esther Harding, Alice O'Howell, Edward Edinger. You had already mentioned Giles Quispel. So Alice O'Howell wrote a book. She passed away recently. She was in her early 90s. And she wrote a book called Jungian Symbolism and Astrology. And I had her because I have studied astrology pretty extensively. And I had her on my list of you know people to read. And 
I just never gotten around to it. And she had a rather large following and she was on the faculty at the Jung Institute in Los Angeles and here in Chicago, which I didn't know, but she wasn't an analyst, was she? No, she was not an analyst. She was an astrologer and a poet and a storyteller and a writer, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me tell you a little story about Alice. I've known Alice, oh, at least since the early 70s, and visited her a number of times, um, and uh, certainly uh, had uh, spent a good bit of time when she was living here in Southern California, uh, or was living in Southern California at the time. And... After one night, uh, after she had uh, done a seminar at the institute, uh, we walked out together, and she was she was complaining to me that she didn't think she could write what she was trying to write, which was her book. I think it was her first book on astrology, and she was talking about how she was going to shelve the whole project. Mm. So we're walking across the intersection on Pico Boulevard. And I stop and kind of playfully kick her in the rear. And I say, Alice, get on it. Mm. And she did. <laughs> Within a relatively short time, she had that book done, and which was followed by many. But um, uh, she just needed a push, <laughs> a kick in the pants, as it were. And there it was. It was... Um, now, one of the things I, I, I point out in Psyche Speaks is how, how important in, uh, in Eros um, act, acting is, acting on the Eros impulse. Mm. Okay? That kick in the pants was an erotic act between Alice and I. It was an erotic act? Yes. Really? Yes. Yes, absolutely. An Eros act. Okay. Oh. And it got it, it. It generated. It generated. Now, if I had said, "Oh, Alice, I'm so sorry to hear that," oh, blah, blah, you know, or whatever, something like that, or just sympathized with her plight, because I have I have similar plights from time to time of not not be, not being able to get going on something or finish something. I have drawers full of things, you know. Anyway, uh, but it that was an aspect of our relationship. That was, I would call, an eros aspect. Yes, very much so. Because of you, it wasn't like I planned to do this. I just, it just came to me to do that, out of the relationship that Alice and I had. When you say eros, you mean the relating between the two of you. Yes, and you uh-huh. called it erotic. And, yes. and what did you mean by that? Well, by, I call it erotic because I want erotic to be much larger than its usual conception. Yes. Um, as part of the idea of bringing eros in relationship to everything that we do. Um, you know, power has so usurped eros. Mm-hmm. Logos has so usurped eros uh, that eros gets, gets um, uh, you know, is... is you know, I like Graham Jackson's uh, war on Eros idea, you know, obviously, um, uh, because uh, that's the thing, that's the one thing that can really counter so much of what's wrong with the world today. Yes, and I, we're so afraid of relating 
to each other. Oh, yes. Of, yes, absolutely. Of, of violating boundaries and offending yes. each other. I mean, it's yes. ridiculous. Yes. I find it ridiculous. Yes. I'm tired of it. Yes. Well, this is why it's important that, you know, Eros does not recognize boundaries. Interesting. Eros does not recognize boundaries. Oh, some people would just have a field day with that. <laughs> we may we may have to uh, recognize boundaries under various conditions and so on. But sure. the the principle that's behind eros and or and is eros is uh, does not recognize boundaries. What do we do? I mean, how do we get back to? How do we save ourselves here from w what's happened? What we've well, become. Is there, is there any going back? Uh, well, I, I I don't think going back is the right idea because yeah, it fills I, us with right. too much too much imagery of what was before, yeah, and I don't yeah, think yeah. we're going. I don't think we're going there. I think we're going ahead. I think we're going forward, but we can go forward with different ideas, with different images. And where is the ideas and images going to come from that aren't just old ideas again? You know, they're going to come from dreams. dreams. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the that's the source, the resource uh, that uh, that I like to promote uh, as um, uh, a way of relating to these kind of questions. Okay, and I'm going to get angry emails if I don't ask you about Edward Edinger. Edward Edinger. Okay, here's a little story about Edward Edinger, okay. and pardon me if I bring along uh, James Hillman into this. <laughs> Okay, uh, I uh, uh, was good friends with Ed uh, as well as James, and at one point in time uh, in Los Angeles, when I was still in Los Angeles, still an analyst there in Los Angeles, I had the bright idea that uh, I would moderate a discussion, a public discussion between uh, Edinger and Hillman. Now, I had a good relationship with each one of them, right? Okay. Okay. So, I proposed this idea to uh, Edinger, and I propose it to Hillman. And Edinger says, I will not appear on a stage with that psychological criminal. Ooh. And Hillman says, I will not appear on that stage with that dinosaur. Such is the uh, real back and forth between analysts. <laughs> wow. Seriously? You're not making that up? I am not making really? that up. Seriously, oh, I was no. terribly, terribly disappointed because I really wanted, I thought that I could handle the problems between them in a, in moder in being in a moderating position because I had a relationship with each of them and I, I respected both of them and uh, I wanted that to happen, but they wouldn't. So that's it? That's the end? Never that's happened? It. Never happened. Never happened. Yeah. <laughs> say, say something about that. I mean, come on. It, it, you know, what I'm always saying about you guys is you should know better. Yeah. Well, as we're analysts. Well, all, all of us were well analyzed, right? So uh, <laughs> I, I won't say what that says about analysis. But, <laughs> but analysis does not keep us from being human. Yeah. I guess that's one way to. Yeah. Think about it. <laughs> okay, so Esther Harding. Tell Esther me Harding. Uh, Esther Harding. I was fortunate uh, to have some conversations with when she uh, visited Los Angeles once when I was still in training. She, uh, uh, we we're having a party actually at Hilda Kirsch's house, so I, I was spending some time with her, talking uh, off to the side, and I asked her the question. I said, uh, uh, 
Freud uh, asked the question, uh, what do women want? And I want to know your answer. And she was quiet for a bit, and then she uh, looked at me, and then she put her hand on my shoulder, and she said, women want men. But there are so very few. Mm. Yeah. So that was like a one of those lightning bolts that go, <laughs> that go through one, you know, yes. that pierces you, and you know, you know that that is a truth. Right. Uh, and you've really got to take that into account. You know, where are the men? What's happened to the men? Well, what do you have to say about that? And, and, and before you answer, I just want to say, I, I have a quote of hers that I found early on in my analysis. And it's on my website. It's on, I think, my page, the page that's on the website about me. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to have to visit the website to find it. But it just got me and it still gets me. And I have it on the website because every time I start to lose my way, I go to that, I think it's one sentence. It's a really long sentence, but it's one sentence. And it just speaks to me like nothing else does. So what what did that comment mean to you? Well, it's meant a lot to me and a lot of different things over the years. Um, certainly when I, uh, when I did the, um, the young lectures that became Psyche Speaks, there's a lot of material in that book uh, that was um, uh, kind of prompted in a way by that, by her. Her comment. By that comment, yeah. Where are the men? And in you know later, you know, as I've, th I've thought more and more and more about it, uh, it relates to this problem of power, uh, and how how so consumed most men are with power, um, and the um, near absence of any any real consideration. We're taking into account eros. Um, and by eros, I don't mean just females. Mm -hmm. I mean the genuine principle of relatedness is not very big on most men's radar. Power is. What are the, what, what are they looking for in, in pursuing power? Uh, the solution or the cure for inadequacy. The solution or the cure for inadequacy? Yes. And they're not finding it there, are they? Or are no. they? No. 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 They find all kinds of things, of course. And mm -hmm. there is so much that reinforces that collectively and and in the way other people respond to, to power that people enact. Um, uh, whether by rejection of that power which is, by, I have to say, by the way, that rejecting power is not the same as eros. Okay. Not having power is not the same as eros. So eros, in that sense, is not quite the same, you know, not quite the, um, the opposite of, of, of power. Mm -hmm. The opposite of power is powerlessness. Yes. Um, eros is a completely different realm. You might think of power as, as vertical, and if you think of, of power as vertical, then there's obviously uh, all the all the symbolism 
of verticality is male-oriented. Mm-hmm. Eros is horizontal. Mm. Much of the symbolism of the horizontal is fem- is feminine. Uh, so vertical uh, power uh, tends to be the enclave of the ma- of the male. I'm not even going to say masculine because I don't feel like you can have a truly masculine quality or presence unless you have a relationship with Eros. And that's what Esther Harding was saying. Ah, right. Would you say just a little bit more about that? Well, um, again, um, uh, you know, in, in my practice over the years, uh, you know, when I was in Los Angeles, I worked with um, uh, uh, Hollywood people, uh, sports people, uh, rich and famous and all that sort of thing. And uh, obviously, as an early analyst, that was terribly inflating. <laughs> I'm know? sure. Yeah. <laughs> but after a very little while, uh, it became terribly boring. Did it? Yes. Why is that? Partly because… Uh, the degree of narcissism uh, in those those areas of the society is so extreme yeah. that you could be in the in the room with a person and essentially not be able to breathe. Yes. Um, and so, working with that became when when you know. Uh, you know, it had inflating qualities, and I have to admit to that to, for sure. You know, I felt like, oh, I was going to be something, <laughs> being able to work with X, Y, and Z. Wow, you know, wouldn't that look good on my resume? Of course, I can't put any of that on my resume. <laughs> so that didn't make any sense. So, right. But anyway, anyway, the narcissism is so extreme. That's when I first learned about narcissism was yeah. in, in that environment. Yes. And it's extreme. Yes. And, but those people. The people were so far away from being themselves mm. uh, that it started to become more of a tragic, have a tragic quality than, you know, than than anything that was related to the outer glamour and all that stuff right. that went with. And so it, it finally became a, a boring. I use that word uh, boring in relation to working with celebrity because. The progress toward becoming real was really slow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the the demand quality and the the um, the what what those people had and, and all that made possible was so enormously devouring. Of poss- all possibilities, of something more real, that it just it as I say it became tragic. And so, being being in Seattle area in in northern Washington, uh, the uh, celebrities that tend to work where you tend to work with uh, tend to be um, in computers. Uh, the computer world, artificial intelligence, and all that sort of thing, and so that's a different, that's a whole different, that's a whole different world than the kind of celebrity that was involved in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and not nearly as narcissistic. Interestingly, you said one of the places we hear psyche least is in the area of relationship. Yes, it is, it is here that the wounded and wounding ego speaks loudest of all. Yes. 
Well, if you uh, read in Psyche Speaks there, uh, or I guess in, a, in, um, in Words as Eggs, there's an essay called Eros and Myth and Dream. Mm -hmm. And there I explore more fully the whole question of Eros. Um, and probably the thing that I've gotten most, most um, both flack and positive comments about is in that book where I say that Eros means telling and it means telling the truth and it means telling everything. So one of the principles or one of the qualities of a good relationship, a relationship that's really working, is one where each partner can fully reveal themselves to the other. No secrets. Yeah, and out of all the books that you've written and all the notes I've taken, I was looking at this half a sentence while you were speaking. It, you said, the most crucial problems of relationship stemmed most often from not telling. Right. Is that what you were referring to? Yes. Yes. And, of course, the, the ego takes this, um, you know, uh, one secret life, as it were, and feels like if they told their partner that this would be injurious to them, mm -hmm. to their partner. So they, <laughs> they, they're protecting their partner's interests right. uh, by withholding. Okay. Well, obviously, that's an ego solution to a problem that goes much deeper, and so it's not a solution at all. And invariably, in my experience in working with people, uh, that almost all, well, not all, but, but a great deal of, of relationship problems come back to this one issue of not telling. Yeah, you said the most cruel thing is to withhold our reality from one another. Yes. And it's that sentence <laughs> that I've gotten probably the most really? feedback. And I found it. <laughs> because because uh, people have, have said that they, uh, you, you know, re really uh, uh, objected to that, but then they took it seriously and started, started revealing. Yeah. And what happens is something they didn't expect to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, all the expectations about... Um, uh, what would happen? It just didn't. You know. So anyway, that's one. <laughs> uh, that would certainly be one thing I would like to leave everyone with. That particular thought. Yes. And let me say one final thing. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Franklin wrote his own epitaph to put on his gravestone, and after all the things that Benjamin Franklin did, what he wanted to remember on his gravestone was printer. Really. So when someone asked me that question of me, <laughs> mm. it, it didn't take very long before I said, dreamer. Mm. Thank you, Dr. Lockhart. Sure. Thank you, Laura. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Lockhart. We had a wonderful two hours together on Skype. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com for more information about the videos, books, and all of the other analysts that were mentioned today as well as links to Dr. Lockhart's web pages. On the website, you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes and on Stitcher. With special thanks to all of my new friends for their kindness and support, 
and gratitude to Sean Lau, Charlie Arthur, and Diane Braden. This is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung 